will need a Bible for the rest of your time. So if you don't have one uh, with you, don't worry. You'll find them on trolleys by the doors as you came in. So without any embarrassment, just head over, grab a Bible. Turn with me to Psalm 8. Uh, we've got a couple of Sunday evenings um, uh, to fill together, uh, to listen to God's Word. And so we're going to spend two Sunday evenings thinking about humanity. Uh, who are we? What are we, for? what are we for? Those are the particular focuses this week. And then next week, we'll think about what's gone wrong and what God is doing about it. So Psalm 8, we're going to read together. A beautiful poem. Well, it's about humanity, but it turns out to be about more than that, as we'll see. Script at the top there, introducing it, Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. If you know what a Gittith is, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. Do come find me. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, the psalm has just reminded us that the one to whom we speak now is the majestic and glorious God, the one who made all things by the power of your word. And we're here with your word open, preparing to try to understand it. So we pray that you would speak with power, help us to understand more clearly who you've made us to be, and give us joy as we embrace that in our relationship with you. Help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Uh, we're, we're good at seeing things we don't like, aren't we? Are you, are you like that? You know, uh, nose is too big, uh, eyes are too close together. I'm trying not to look at anybody in particular here. I mean, this is just, just general comments, right? Um, hairline in rapid retreat. We see things that we don't like, but, but that's not really what I'm talking about. When you look at yourself, as you look at a human being in the mirror, what is it that you're looking at? What is a human? Uh, what is a human worth? What is a human for? Uh, you may have noticed that we're living through a period of massive confusion when it comes to questions of human identity and purpose. It, it used to be simpler. Uh, In this country, for example, in the past, and in other countries still today, uh, identity would come from a person's place in society. So, you know, in my place, I'd be a a son, uh, an uncle, a a brother, a pastor. Uh, Think of me, this might not work for you, but think of me like a bee, and society around me as the beehive. In uh, traditional cultures, I find my identity from my place in the hive, 
And that gives me my purpose as well. My purpose is to serve the interests of the hive, the interests of society. And that's why self-sacrifice was so celebrated. I was submitting myself to the good of the society in which I live. Now, that kind of way of finding your identity has pros and cons when you think it through. The pros are that there's a lot of clarity about how I fit in and what I should do. Very simple. I should serve the society around me. The con, though, is that I'm stuck, aren't I, with whatever status or role the hive decides that I should have. So, for example, if the hive says that you're um, a woman without a vote and that you should stay at home and do the dusting while your husband goes to work, that's who you are. That's what the hive says, that's who you are, and that's that. And perhaps, understandably, our culture has found that way of thinking too repressive, and we now think very differently today, don't we? Where it used to be all about the hive, uh, today it's all about the bee, it's all about me, it's all about the individual. I get to choose uh, who I am and what I'm for, regardless of what the society around me thinks. And again, when you think it through, there are pros and cons. Pros, in theory, I can be whatever I want to be. Society can't uh, stick a label on me and keep me down. All I need to do, we're told, is look inside myself and discover who I really am. But there are some very big downsides, too. If I can be anything I want to be, how do I decide what to be? When I look inside myself, I find myself very confusing, don't you? A whole jumble of different kind of identities all mixed up together. If I'm supposed to choose who I am, what happens if I make the wrong choice? What happens when I change my mind about who I am? What happens if I'm just not very good at being the person I've chosen to be? It sounds really good, doesn't it, to be told that we can be whatever we want to be, but in reality, it brings on on us an enormous amount of pressure. You now have to make your life work. You have to figure out what you are and what you're for. And if you do a bad job of it, you can't blame society. It's your fault. And so it's no wonder, is it, that so many people are struggling, confused and anxious about their identity and their purpose. And when a person becomes a Christian, they discover or they rediscover an extraordinary identity. It's not one they've carved for themselves or found inside themselves. It's one they've been given as a gift. And it's described here in Psalm 8. Now notice the, psalm, the psalmist here doesn't tell us to look around to society to tell us who we are. He doesn't tell us to look inside ourselves either. If you want to know who you are and what you're for, don't look out, don't look in. Look up. Look up. Here's the first thing to notice here. Humans are lowly and loved. Verses 1 to 4. Lowly and loved. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Lift your eyes away from yourself, away from the world and the billions of men and women in it. Lift your eyes above the roof of creation and see in your mind's eye the creator. Seated on his throne. Majestic. Glorious. Praiseworthy. Beautiful in his perfections. All wise. Source of life and light and maker of everything in heaven and earth. His glory is above the heavens. That is, his glory can't be confined inside this creation. 
Have a look later on at Genesis 1. See how God and his creation relate to each other. God makes all things, but he's not part of those things. He's above it. He rules over it. Creation declares God's glory, but God isn't trapped or contained within it. His glory is above it and outside it and supreme over it. And the Bible examines and celebrates this in various places. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he, that is God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God is glorious over his creation. His name, his character is majestic, so glorious that his name, his character on the lips of the smallest child, verse 2, is enough to silence his enemies. God is glorious over his creation. And this, notice, is where the psalmist begins when he explores humanity. He starts with God. And it's this starting point that explains why the church and the world can be so far apart when it comes to these issues. It's because we're starting in completely different places. There's an old um, Paddy and Murphy joke. I'll repeat it, but I'm afraid it's probably politically incorrect. About a man asking for directions to some such place. And Paddy and Murphy's reply is, um, I won't do the accent, uh, oh dear, well, I wouldn't start from here. That was silly, isn't it? But that's what's going on here. Your starting point really matters. If you're a Christian and you're speaking with a, with a friend and you're baffled by their view of the world, their view of humanity and everything else, or maybe uh, you're the only Christian in your year at, the, at school that you know of, and, and everyone else in your year thinks completely differently on these basic questions. Remember, you're starting in a completely different place. If you didn't believe in God, you might think the same as them about identity or sexuality or gender or whatever it is. A biblical worldview on anything and everything begins with God. The glory of God, the supremacy and rule of God, that is the beginning of our theology. And we'll never understand truly who we are until we understand truly who God is. Uh, John Calvin, in his um, uh, Theology of the Institutes, begins the whole thing like this. He says, It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. You've got to start with God. You'll never understand who you are until you've begun to understand who God is. Before you look out or look in, look up. Start with him. And when we start with him, what do we see? What do we understand about ourselves? Well, we see our lowliness, our lowliness, our smallness. So in verse Three, the psalmist walks out of his house and he stares up at the night sky, right? There he is staring at the bright moon and the countless stars. No light pollution, of course, in the Middle Eastern desert. He stares at the celestial balls. They're high in the heavens and he feels very, very small. What is man? You must have felt this yourself somewhere. I don't know, taking an airplane flight over the Alps or 
standing on the shore of a vast ocean, the, the water stretching out beyond your vision. Or opening the door and looking out at a thunderstorm, lightning flashing across the sky, thunder booming. It makes us feel very small. And smaller still when we remember the one who sends the lightning. The one who, verse 3, have a look, fashioned the heavens with his fingers. His fingers. What do you do with your fingers? I don't know, do your hair? Pull apart blue tack? Unlock your phone with your thumbprint? With his fingers, God makes planets. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, if you're so glorious and I'm so small, how is it that you care about me? How is it that you think about me? How is it that you love me? But he does, doesn't he? God cares about the people he's made. He cares about you, little grasshopper you. Not because you're big and impressive. Creation itself tells you that you're not. You're just a speck in a vast creation, but he cares about you. And Christian, you know, don't you, that he cares about you so much that he sent his son to become small like you, just a grasshopper size like you. He took on flesh like yours so that he could die for you and love you forever as his son or daughter. You are lowly and you're wonderfully loved. You know, the great tragedy of a world rejecting God and trying to carve out their own identity is that there is no identity so wonderful, so secure, so stable as being loved by God. Do you know that about yourself? Now, let me speak to you, particularly if you're not a Christian. You, you are very welcome here. Whatever your faith position, we're so pleased you're with us this evening. But do you know that there is a God in heaven who cares about you? He notices you. He loves you, and he wants to love you and to know you and to care for you. He is much, much, much bigger than you. He's bigger than you could ever imagine but he cares about you. Don't you want to know him? Lowly in love, secondly, royal and ruling. Royal and ruling, verses five to nine. See the first, um, first word of that second section there in verse five? First, first word of verse five, yet. <laughs> yet. Despite everything I've said, yet. Now, the psalmist almost can't believe the words that he's about to write. That a species so low, so weak, so dusty and fragile and small could be given by God such an identity. And what is that identity? Verse 5, royalty. Royalty. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, only just lower even than the angels in heaven, and crowned him with glory and honor. This psalm picks up language from Genesis 1. It's a sort of reflection on Genesis 1. Remember back there how God forms Adam from the dust of the earth. Adam is a part of creation. He's molded clay, made alive by the breath of God. 
And God says these astonishing words over Adam, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He says it both of Adam and Eve equally. Let us make them in our image after our likeness. In other words, let's make man as much like God as it's fitting for a creature to be. Let's bestow on man an identity of stunning glory and dignity. Now, you can really go down the rabbit hole if you want to find out people's opinions on what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. People have speculated an awful lot. And there are probably two sides of the same coin. Uh, mankind is created to be like God in some way. In, in what way, though, are we like God? Well, there's all sorts of ideas out there. Some, some are convinced that this is talking about mankind's reason, our ability to reason, which perhaps distinguishes us from the animals who operate on instinct. Other people point to how relational we are, and they say, well, God's relational, and so we're relational too. And, and you can find a whole other, a whole big range of other suggestions. The, the fact is, I don't think Genesis tells us exactly what that likeness is. You can correct me afterwards if you think I'm wrong. But it does tell us the implications of being made in God's image. The consequences of it, it means we're told that you have a royal identity, a royal dignity. You're not just a sack of cells. Because you're made in God's image and likeness, you are royal. And so you're of incredible worth and value to God. It's a, it's a flawed illustration, really, but you could think of a, a 20-pound note. Stamped on that 20-pound note is a picture of the monarch. It bears their image, their likeness. I don't know whether or not that image gives the note its value, which is where the illustration falls down, but it is a stamp of the value. It's an indicator of the note's value. It's a, a sort of a guarantee that this isn't just a piece of paper. It's, it's valuable. You can do something with this. And you can scrunch up that 20-pound note, and you can drop it in a puddle, if you like, and it'll still be valuable. And because they're now made of whatever they're made of, it'll survive, which is great, isn't it? It still bears the royal image. It's something like that with us. Our value comes not from what we do or from the opinions we hold or the grades that we get at school or the career that we hold down. It doesn't come from anything we achieve. It's received as a gift from God. And isn't that a relief? Your value in God's eyes is not bound up in what you do or how clever or attractive or popular you are. It isn't in your waist measurements or in your Instagram followers. You have an objective value because God has stamped you with his image and likeness. Now, our culture, by and large, has chosen to reject that, which is, I think, again, why we're having such a crisis of identity. People don't know who they are. They're trying to make themselves valuable by what they do, what they think, what they say. Christians can be free from that. And notice in the psalm that that royal identity and that royal dignity comes with royal purpose. Verse 6 to 8 tell us that God has made mankind to be ruling kings and queens over the world he's made, to exercise dominion over the world. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, put all things under his feet. Notice, by the way, it's dominion. It's not domination or abuse. The world still belongs to God. We rule under him, which is why it's vital that humanity cares for the world God made. You don't need to have a particular view on climate change to know that this world needs to be cared for. You just need Genesis 1 or Psalm 8. 
This was the noble task given to Adam and Eve, to be God's royal representatives over the world he made, to live with royal dignity and to serve with royal purpose and to reflect the glory of God as they did so in his world. And despite Adam and Eve's sin, the human race still bears that image and likeness today with all of the dignity and all the purpose that comes with it. And that changes how we see, well, first of all, ourselves. If I want to know who I am and what I'm for, and before I look at myself in the mirror, I should take a long look at God in his word. That's where I'm going to find my identity, in my relationship with him, understanding myself in relation to him. If I try to build an identity without him in the picture, I'll be unstable, insecure, anxious, desperately trying to prove myself, make something of myself. But when the Bible tells me that God has given me a far more glorious and wonderful identity than I could ever create for myself, he knows I'm very small, but he loves me. He's given me dignity and purpose in the world to serve him with the life he's given me. And that purpose can shape every part of my life. I I go uh, to school, for example, as a royal servant of God. I go to work to represent God as his image bearer. Whether I'm a teacher or a doctor or a road sweeper or a taxman or a postman or a pastor, I am God's image bearer. I'm created to serve and glorify him, to reflect his glory in the world he's made. And when you know that, even the lowliest task becomes glorious, doesn't it? When I do it as his representative in his world. So the challenge for us is this. When I look in the mirror, will I see what I think I am or what God thinks I am? Will I proudly insist on making up my own identity and chasing my own purpose? Or will I humbly accept from God the glorious identity and purpose that he's given me? So it shapes how I see myself, but it shapes too, surely, how I see other people, doesn't it? Now, this Psalm 8 isn't only true of me, it's true of those around me as well. Some of them may be people I like and enjoy spending time with. Others I might dislike and find difficult. But every single one of them is made in God's image and likeness. Now, they may not accept that themselves. They may not even believe in God. But I know, because the Bible tells me so, that they have royal dignity and purpose in God's sight. And that simply must shape how I think about them and how I relate to them. It must make a difference. Christians should be the most respectful people on the planet because we know what a person is worth. That person online or that making our life a misery or that difficult colleague or aggravating neighbor, they may be very, very difficult. And maybe they've um, chosen a lifestyle I strongly disagree, disagree with, but the Bible tells me that they're made in God's image just as I am. And so I must treat them with respect no matter how they behave. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them, but I must treat them as one made in God's image. And we need to make sure, don't we, that we do this, we model this as a church family, knowing what we know about the human race. A church that takes this seriously is a beautiful thing to see. It's a place where the the weak and the lowly are honored and valued. Those rejected by others are welcomed by us. No one is ever beneath our time and our care And no matter who walks in through the door on a Sunday, we will value and respect them. Regardless of their views or their behavior, their sexuality, their ethnicity, their attitude to Christianity, they may be very hostile. They're still one stamped with God's image and likeness. That's everyone who comes in, and they should be treated as such. 
So this psalm teaches us how to see ourselves and how to see others, and then finally and wonderfully how to see Jesus. As you think about the the timeline of the Bible, you'll realize that there's a kind of an elephant in the room, or an elephant in the psalm, if you like. The psalm's quoting from the first two chapters of Genesis, or alluding to it at least, when Adam and Eve were first given the task of ruling the world on God's behalf. But the elephant in the psalm is Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, they rejected God's rule and tried to seize the throne for themselves. And ever since, mankind has been rejecting their God-given identity and purpose. We don't see humanity ruling on God's behalf. What we see in the world around us is mankind in rebellion. So where do we go to see God's rule and glory displayed? Well, Hebrews 2 will help. So do flick to Hebrews 2 towards the back of the Bible. If you're using a church Bible, it's page uh, 1001. 1001. We started our prayer gathering on Thursday in Hebrews. It was great, really great, by the way, to see so many there at the prayer gathering. We have prayer gatherings every two Thursdays, so this week it will be fellowship groups, and then the week after, prayer gathering. Stick it in your diary. Always a fantastic encouragement, so please do come along and pray with us. Hebrews. Have a look down at Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 8. Can you see that there's a quotation there? It's put in slightly different... um, structure from the rest. Where's that quotation from? Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And who is that about, according to verse 9? Have a look down with me at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Can you see what this means about Psalm 8? Given humanity's rebellion against God back in Genesis 3, where can we go to see humanity as it's meant to be, ruling and reigning? Hebrews 2 tells us it's Jesus. Here is where God's glory is put on perfect display in mankind. He dignified humanity by becoming one of us, a a grasshopper, lowly, lowly like us. He didn't become an angel, did he? He became like you. He lived a perfectly human life. His sense of identity was found in his relationship with God. He died a truly human death. He restored humanity by dying on the cross. And having risen from the dead, he, he lifted humanity by rising to the throne where now he sits above the circle of the earth, crowned with glory and honor, and doing perfectly the job God gave humanity to do at the beginning. God's image and likeness sits on the throne, really ruling over God's world. There is a man on God's throne today, the most perfect expression of humanity, the most glorious display of God's majesty. God really has, as the psalm says, set his glory above the heavens. Jesus, humanity as it was made to be. 
And it's as we put our trust in him, it's as we're joined to him by faith that we become what we were made to be as well. The Lord Jesus gives us a passion for his glory, for God's glory, the passion for which we were made. He teaches us to find our identity in relationship with God. And one day, the Bible tells us we will reign with him, kings and queens in God's new creation. Even today, God calls us to be his royal representatives on earth, to live in such a way that God's glory and majesty and beauty are put on display. To serve him in such a way that God is seen by others as glorious. And so that the world might say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There is no identity. There is no purpose more glorious than that. Let's pray.